What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Arnie's. We are three genies that can't help falling in love with nothing better to do. I'm Matt Johnson, and as a gin, I would like to be trapped in a Tito's bottle. I'm Keith Baker, and what the hell is a gin? And I'm Austin Terry, and I would use all three of my magic wishes from a gin to wish for a better movie. Ooh, wow. Getting right to it, Austin. I know your thoughts, but on today's show... We are, of course, discussing the new fantasy romantic drama film from George Miller, 3,000 Years of Longing. I didn't really know too much about this movie. I guess to be transparent, uh, the reason that we thought about doing this in the first place is I don't think we talked about this movie in our January episode where we kind of ran down all the movie and TV releases of the year that we were kind of paying attention to. But I do know the reason we thought about this one is because... I don't know, maybe Austin saw a trailer. I think I saw a trailer for it at one point, and it definitely gave us kind of that whimsical, different, fun, and different feeling that the Everything Everywhere All at Once trailers gave us. So whenever we saw that movie and really liked it, we thought about, hey, something like this is coming out. Great cast, obviously, with Tilda Swinton and Andrew Selba, and George Miller, I think, is an always extremely exciting director to uh, be paying attention to. So That's really it. That's all I've got. That's why we thought about doing 3,000 Years of Vlogging, and here we are. So I guess without further ado, Austin and Keith, if you have anything you want to say, jump in. But if not, how about you just give me your non-spoiler thoughts on 3,000 Years of Longing? Yeah, the trailer for 3,000 Years of Longing just kind of came out of nowhere. And I think, unfortunately, the trailer is better than the actual film. Um, I was surprised at how much of a love story this movie is because I didn't they didn't set that up in the trailer um it's it's really more so like a collection of short stories told by a Jin and Tilda Swinton just happens to be in the movie um I do think the first two-thirds of the movie are way more interesting than where the film actually ends I was very compelled by the visuals and the interaction between Tilda Swinton and Giselba but there's really not much else there I think Tilda Swinton who is is usually a lot more um, charismatic is very grounded in this movie for some reason. And overall, just by the time the credits rolled, it left me kind of feeling a little hollow and like they kind of just relied on their star power and, and didn't have a great concise story they wanted to tell. So I, I would say very underwhelming. Um, there's some things to like about this one for sure, but definitely a disappointment for me. Yeah, I'm kind of with Austin. The first like third, maybe first half for me is a lot more interesting. I like the short story aspect, but I think you nailed it, Austin. I felt like the story wasn't leading up to anything. I, I, I kind of started getting bored in the last half, and I kept asking myself the question, like, where's this, where's this going? And then sure enough, it was kind of, I was kind of right, I mean, you know, not, not to give the way in, but it didn't really go anywhere. So um, It's really a shame that this is a genie story, and the actual wishes are the least interesting part of the movie. Exactly. I feel like, I feel like they had a really good idea with this story, and a good cast, too, um, but just didn't execute it right. For sure. I don't know. Something was missing. (laughs) Definitely. So that's where I'm at. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm for the most part right there with you guys. Uh, I think the first thing I said to Keith whenever we were walking out is definitely not bad. Um, I thought it was interesting, but that's probably the best thing I could say about it is the word interesting. Uh, Certainly ambitious. The scope of it is pretty cool. Uh, I as well also really liked the short story aspect. That's something I didn't really know going into it. That was kind of a welcome surprise to be sure. Um, I actually liked how the wishes were used throughout the story. My complaint, uh, without spoiling anything, is the payoff of the wishes when it comes to the present day story. That's where things got a little bit confusing. And maybe I read certain things wrong. Maybe I eventually I'll have to watch this one again after time passes and kind of reevaluate. But it just felt like some of the wishes near the end completely contradicted 
the entire past two thirds of the movie, it felt like certain characters were like kind of listening to the gin, but then when we get to the end, it's like, oh, I guess you weren't. That seems to be a really dumb thing to wish for. <laughs> uh, so kind of bizarre and very confusing, which to Austin's point really led to me not liking the last third of this movie. Not only was it kind of confusing from like a character perspective, but I thought the editing of the movie at the end was quite bad. Um, it just keeps cutting to black screens. It just keeps fading away to black. And then we just pops up again. It's like, oh, the story is still going. Why are you doing this? Like the movie before that was never edited this way. <laughs> and then it just like keeps fading to black in the last third and led to these like false feeling endings. And then eventually it does end. And then when it faded to black again, I was like, all right, what's the next thing? And then it actually ended. And I was like, OK, directed by George Miller. <laughs> so it, it was just, yeah, it, bizarre movie. Ultimately, I think I agree. I was underwhelmed. Definitely not bad. Quite interesting. First two thirds, way better than the final third uh, and kind of an underwhelming and confusing ending based on the characters like motivations up until that point. So, yeah, I wish I could recommend this one more, but I do not think that I can. Yeah, I think honestly it would have been jarring, but if, if the first two thirds had cut to black and said directed by George Miller, I would have been like, wow, that was a weird ending, but great movie. Like, yeah, just I think the, the final third too. just really leaves a, a sour taste in your mouth. So I think ultimately I'm with Matt too. I, I can't really recommend going out to theaters to see this one, despite how visually impressive it is. I think if you wait until it's on streaming and you just put it on one night, you'll probably be left feeling a little better about it than the three of us are. Yeah, I mean, it's always a bummer whenever we hop on podcast and do an episode like this where at least like none of us can recommend it at least when it comes to theaters like you said austin you know obviously i wish i could be more positive but i think i'm right there i mean i don't know how how else to put it like if it comes to streaming sure i think you know if you're sitting home one night you might get something out of it it's under two hours so it'll, it'll go by relatively quickly but definitely when it comes to theaters i can't recommend it and that like you said austin that it sucks to say that because in a weird way, almost like the only reason to see it is because of how incredible a lot of the visuals are. And you certainly won't be able to appreciate that fully uh, later on when it's not in theaters. So it's one of those weird back and forths where like maybe if, if you're going to see it, this like a theater experience is the only time to do so. But eh, I think ultimately maybe just wait on it. So there you go. You know how we're feeling. So let's go ahead and drop that spoiler warning. If you have not seen 3000 Years of Longing and are planning on it. Uh, turn off our episode, go check it out, and then come on back. We'll be waiting for you. Or if you're somebody that doesn't really care about getting spoiled, stick with us. It's going to be a fun ride. All right, everybody. Welcome to my favorite place, spoiler territory. Austin and Keith, as always, start us off with the cast and crew. And I think without question, this will be the quickest cast and crew segment we've ever done. Yeah, so 3,000 Years of Longing is directed by George Miller, who you of course may know for the Mad Max franchise, including the upcoming spinoff Furiosa, Babe, and Happy Feet. It's written by George Miller and Augusta Gore, and our score is composed by Tom Hulkenberg, aka Junkie XL. It's based on The Djinn in the Nightmare's Eyes by A.S. Byatt. All right, and going into our cast, we have Tilda Swinton as Alethea Binney and Idris Elba as The Djinn. All right, guys, there's our long cast and crew. Any positives? Any negatives? What do we got? I did think Idris Elba was really good in the movie. Um, I found him to be the most compelling character on screen, at least. I thought, like I said in my intro, I thought Tilda Swinton was very grounded and not as, char and not as charismatic as she usually is in her other movies. Um, so I guess my highlight is Idris Elba, but it's such a small cast and crew that 
that means 50% of the movie didn't really work for me. Yeah. I don't I don't know if I have any positives or negatives, really. It's just kind of <laughs> indifference, really. Because I like both Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton uh, for all their previous projects they've been in. Um, both great actors, actresses. But yeah, like you said, Austin, I think Tilda really didn't shine too much in this one for me. And, and Idris was... Idris was good, but he really didn't. I guess he really didn't say a whole lot. Like there was, I feel like there wasn't really a lot that much dialogue in this movie. The movie feels like mostly narration. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, no positive or negative, just kind of whatever. Um, I really like George Miller as a director. I think he always is trying to push the envelope from an effects standpoint, and whenever he can do practical, he certainly does. I think most people would obviously cite something like Mad Max Fury Road as a time where he really nailed that. Even Babe. I mean, I think people forget how kind of ahead of its time Babe was when it came to visuals. Babe was cool. I love that movie. Um, And I, I guess it's a weird positive. So I guess I would shout him out from like, when it comes to his visual mind, because I have to imagine the way this movie looks is in a huge part to him. But I, I don't know. I guess I also have to mainly call out like the VFX department, anybody that was in charge of the special effects, animators, whatever it may be. Whoever those people were in those teams, I mean, that's really, I think, where the movie sang. So I guess I would shout them out and maybe a smaller one for George Miller for kind of uh, letting them know what he wanted it to look like. But I think that's all I can say. I mean, I agree with you guys when it comes to Tilda Swinton and Indra Elba. I think, yeah, Tilda Swinton may not be. She does some narration, but other than that, I mean, it's mostly the Jin story, so you don't get a whole lot of her. I liked her, and then same with Idris Elba. I liked him too, but it's just, it's not like like a glowing, you know, positive for their performances or anything. But, you know, I enjoyed them quite a bit. I will also say, this. I haven't had this happen in a while, but I went and saw this movie in a big mega theater. Um, that's where the screening was. And my wife and I were the only people in the entire theater. Well, Austin, that is a great transition for me when it comes to our critical reception section here. So you know how the three of us felt. So let me know what else is going on from an outside perspective with this one. So 3,000 Years of Longing received positive reviews and currently has a 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. The site's critical consensus is, although its story isn't as impressive as its visual marvels, it's hard not to admire 3,000 Years of Longing's sheer ambition. And now for the sad part. Uh, The film is on track to be one of the biggest box office bombs of 2022. It costs $60 million to make and has only made $4.8 million so far. Industry experts blame the wide release theater strategy and mainly the fact that there was a pretty huge lack of marketing for this film. Um, So, yeah. Any thoughts on that? Because Keith and I actually were uh, one of many people in the theater but the big caveat to that is it was one of those really small theaters. It was probably like three rows of seats and that's it. Oh, geez. And if I recall, it might have been the only time that day that they were showing the movie. So it was like one showing out of the whole day. And if you didn't go to this 8 p.m. showing, then you couldn't see it. There was a decent amount of screenings at my local theater. Um, but even the screening before us had no like cleaning crew in there. Like, I don't think anybody was at the screening before <laughs> us. So it's, it's definitely bombing. Um, I agree with the marketing call out. I've only seen one trailer for this movie, and it was on a very short release. And then the only other marketing I've heard is just some random podcast advertisements. And it's basically just like, hey, this movie is directed by George Miller. Uh, Please go see it. And it doesn't tell you anything about the movie. So they really failed George Miller and the crew when it comes to actually marketing this movie. Yeah, it's weird. I'd love to go back and like, I'd love to look on YouTube when the original trailer came out. Because, yeah, to your point, I've only seen the trailer once. And it must have been at this point 
months and months ago, like whenever they first released it, like get ready, like later this year, 3000 years of longing. And I was like, that looks cool. I'll go see that. But how have I not seen an advertisement? How have I not seen another commercial like just pop on before a movie or like get recommended to me in like a YouTube ad? How have I not seen anything about this movie in like in those months? Like that just seems really bizarre. So, yeah, whether regardless of the fact that we didn't love the movie, I I do agree with you that I think uh, whoever marketing wise is working on this really let the team down. How have I not seen an advertisement that says from the man who brought you Mad Max Fury Road, come see his next adventure, 3000 years of longing. Right. Seems easy. (laughs) So even though we didn't love it, I mean, it's kind of cool that we got to go witness this movie before inevitably it's going to get shoved out of theaters and do terribly. So it's nice to give it, you know, some notice in that sense, because it's not bad. I think, you know, some people might like it. So at least we're giving it awareness. I wish it was better. But, you know, regardless of that, let's go ahead and get into our roundtable discussion. This is kind of the bulk of our podcast where each of us Brings a point or two to something that we want to talk about specifically, and it's kind of just how we frame our conversation. So, guys, who's going to start us off today? Yeah, I was really surprised how much of this movie is really just the Jin's life story. Um, Matt, this actually kind of reminded me of episode six of The Sandman when we're going through time and yeah. seeing all these events through another character's perspective. Mm-hmm. So, did you guys have any highlights here? What were your favorite parts about the Jin's story? Uh, yeah, I guess, like I said earlier, just the, the short stories, um, all, all three short stories, like with. Sheba and Mustafar and like the different time periods that you know he made his way through and like the way he kind of explained like what it was like being in the bottle for so long at the bottom of the sea for like 400 years at one point maybe another like 800 years another point and then all that each individual story he had like a different kind of take on all of them all of them and different perspective on each person like he wasn't just like a consistent genie I guess you could say throughout all three like he you know, he kind of questioned everything each time he was let out of the bottle. Yeah. And I like the transitions between the stories. I liked how and they also played with like some classic gin or genie lore. I really like the element of one of the people that finds his bottle and becomes, you know, the the person making the wishes. Uh, they make two of their wishes. But then before they can make their third, they are murdered. And because they never completed all their wishes, the gin becomes invisible and his bottle was kind of hidden away so because nobody else knows where the bottle is and he's invisible he he spends i think like a hundred years or so just kind of wandering in solitude and i liked the follow-up story to that the most which was the Murad four the fourth i think was his name and his brother ibrahim uh i just thought that was kind of maybe the story that was the one that we spent the most time with like all the while he's invisible it's the story about these two brothers potentially vying for uh, power. One of them doesn't really care about it and just wants to have sex all the time. Uh, I guess wants to is a weird word because I guess at first he doesn't, but it's just like his mother forcing him to so that they can have uh, more potential heirs and stuff. But then the brother seemingly is like, I guess, blood related to the djinn uh, and then seems to be a cool kid and then goes off to war and becomes this like bloodthirsty crazy leader uh and i like the story that followed up with that and then eventually uh the bottle is found and <laughs> like you said keith the gin isn't always consistent because once the bottle is finally found you're like oh my god he's finally out and then because he's so excited to be out of the body he's like make a wish make a wish and the person is freaking out and basically just wishes for him to go back into the bottle and they want the bottle to be at the bottom of the sea so there was some kind of like goofy moments like that which i appreciated but i, I would say overall my favorite story was that uh Maraud 4 and the 
Abraham. I don't know if I hope I'm pronouncing those right, but I guess I would just call it the brother's story. I thought that was interesting. The one that he's invisible the whole time of. Yeah, the brother's story I thought was the best one as well. Um, I did like the first part of that too with King Solomon. It was, was kind of cool to hear all these historical names and see it from kind of this mystical perspective. And I did like their the initial setup with Tilda Swinton in the hotel. I liked kind of their banter back and forth. She is like the perfect person to find this bottle because she is a scholar. So having her question things and question his motivation was super interesting. Um, and we'll get into this later. I'm sure that they event- they get away from that real quick as she becomes more enthralled with him. But the initial setup and then the story with King Solomon and then the brothers were my favorite parts of of the movie, I think. Sometimes they did explain things very well. You know, whenever he's kind of explaining like what wishes you can't make and which ones you can. Yeah, I like that. But then there's some other stuff, like you said, Austin, where some of the stuff he was saying or trying to explain really got rushed through for me. And it just turned out to be kind of like contradictory towards the end. I think a great like simple example of that is is they do set up in the beginning. These are the only wishes I can't grant you. I can't grant you immortality. I can't grant you like world prosperity. The classic thing of you can't wish for more wishes. Got all that out of the way. Really like that. But then she kind of shrewdly, I thought, tries to be like, I wish to have a sip of tea and drinks it. And I was actually excited when she did that because I was like, oh, this is really interesting. She's not going to take the bait and actually wish for anything. But then he go- he just goes, I can't grant those. It's not your heart's desire. But they didn't set that up earlier when he was explaining yeah. how it works for that either. So it, it does tend to contradict itself like pretty immediately in some cases. That's why he tells her the story about um, the woman that wishes for the prince or the heir to fall in love with her and she wishes to get pregnant from him. But then she isn't able to make a third wish and she's murdered which causes the djinn to become invisible. So he tells her that story, and then I believe it cuts back to President at one point, and he's basically like, so that's why you, you need to make wishes, because if you don't, you're dooming me to a fate worse than being trapped in a bottle. Well, I heard that, and I was like, okay, that makes sense why they told that story. And I like that short story, so the fact that it had like a message and a meaning to the present-day storyline was cool. That was good writing. But then whenever, yeah, Alethea like goes like, I want this tea, and it's like, oh, are they just like, getting the wishes right out of the way like how's this going to end but then like you said something that could have used a bit more time in the oven i think was the whole element of your wish has to be your heart's desire and that's where it's like okay i mean i think that's probably a good thing when it comes to like a gin story but it still is a little i don't know a little goofy they could they could have like hit on that a little bit more another thing i thought was initially set up very well and then very quickly discarded is Alethea, at the beginning of the movie and for the majority of the film, is very clear that she's a solitary person. She likes being alone. She's very content with who she is. But then immediately her her wishes are like all about, I want I want you to desire me. I want that love that you had with the previous person. And that was a very quick, quick flip for her character. And I think because we spent so much time with Idris Elba, we never really got to figure out why Alethea all of a sudden flipped to wanting a partner, wanting that desire. It just wasn't justified very well, I felt, in the film. Yeah, her first wish was the moment that the movie started to go real downhill. And this, this is what I was referring to in the non-spoiler section. Uh, maybe I'm giving the movie too much credit, but I just feel like I must have missed something. Because that moment was so weird to me. Like, after listening to all of the Jin stories, which, by the way, some of those stories included wishes about falling in love with people, as a cautionary tale, which you, as the scholar, called out without him ever mentioning it, you're like, well, I don't want to make a wish because there's always, you know, like a, a another side to it. Like, you know, making wishes with gins is a cautionary tale. And then her first wish is for him to fall in love with her. Like, 
I don't know. I mean, did I miss something? Because I thought that was bizarre. and I, I didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was weird. Uh, I know she mentioned that she was married at one time, and then she kind of explained how that marriage fell apart. I think they put that in there just to explain maybe maybe why she wanted like true love or something like that. Who knows? It, it definitely just kind of flips on you. I did think another like classic flip on the genie tale that I found interesting was that the djinn himself actually did fall in love multiple times with the people who had power over him. You never think about things from the genius perspective. They're usually this like otherworldly thing that feels um, unhuman. And there were very much human characteristics of Idris Elba's character. Yeah. And that's why I like the Zephyr storyline, because I believe that he fell in love with her. Like I actually kind of understood that even if the love was there were some holes in it if you want to call it that like because she's also ugh, being kind of held against her will i think they said that this guy forced marriage on her when she was 12 and then like a few years later i guess she stumbles upon uh the bottle and then they you know start a years-long thing that turns romantic so yeah i i kind of like that too because i was i was not expecting that whenever the djinn first showed up and was telling his story and then it turns out he basically acknowledges that he's flawed and like he makes mistakes all the time because he's like fallen in love and then he's made decisions out of that. Most of those decisions, which end up causing him to be trapped in the bottle again, he's like, I fell in love with her and I knew I just had to give her space. So I created a situation where if we ever got in a fight, I would go back in the bottle and then she wishes that they had never met. So then she forgets about him and he's trapped in the bottle just because he needed space from his girlfriend, basically. So, again, it's kind of funny. And I, I'm with you, Austin. I like that the Jin uh, wasn't just stoic, like the way Idris Elba was playing him, uh, but also that there was like this weird, goofy, flawed, and like he's also just not very good at what he does sometimes. So, <laughs> I kind of like that element. So on that note, something something I did also find weird is we spend so much time with the Jin and his past, I guess, three subjects who also had the wish power with him. And I thought the first half of this movie was going to be the Jin's short stories, learning about the Jin, And then the second half was going to be more of Alethea and the Jin and their wishes and their own story. And we're going to get to see that play out in real time. And it does get there. But what was weird for me about it is we don't see their relationship at all. It's just like a montage almost. And that's where the final act kind of comes in. And it was very baffling to me at how quickly it does slow down. It's a it's a montage. It's very slow. She's just back to her normal life. And then the credits roll. So that's why the story, I think, felt pointless to me is because there was never like that final cherry on top of, of what the story with Alethea was supposed to be. So what about this final act kind of fell apart for you guys as well? Yeah, you don't really see a lot of their love story, which is what she the biggest wish that she made. Wasn't it the only wish she made, too? Well, we'll get to that. But, I mean, yeah, to your point, Keith, she made the first wish is to fall in love, and then I, w I want you to ex expand on it more. But, yeah, I felt the same way. It's just like once we get to their quote-unquote love story, their, their conversations don't really feel that different. So it's like, okay, <laughs> like they don't seem like they're in love. But, yeah, I keep going. What did you think? No, yeah, they, yeah, you really don't see... I'm not. I'm not convinced that they're in love because yeah, you don't even you don't even see anything. You don't really see them like hanging out together or anything like that. It's just her going to work, and then she gets home. She's like, "Hey, I'm home." It's a very like pedestrian life. Like, there's nothing really special about it, or like mystical or intriguing. It's like you went to work and came home. That that's what I did before the movie. 
Like, why are we watching this? Yeah, because they really make it like whenever he's in, whenever the whenever Jen's in love with the other other people in the in the short stories, like they really like highlighted it a lot, like how much he how much in love he is with them. And there's stakes to those stories too, or with like historical figures, or with King Solomon, and yeah, yeah. I think honestly, what it comes down to for me as well is just like I just I, I understood that the third act of the movie was probably going to be this, but. Whenever the first two thirds was these really interesting kind of, I think, well-told short stories, every time we cut back to the present, like there was some cool like payoffs to the messages, like I mentioned earlier, but I was never particularly interested in Aletheia and the Jinn, like them specifically. So whenever, I don't know, whenever like the, the end of the movie just became about the present day story, that was already kind of knock against it for me. Um, and I don't know, maybe I'm being too optimistic. Is there a possibility that, like, Aletheia's vision of love, like what she is wishing for, essentially, is that pedestrian life? Maybe that could be there could be truth to that. Maybe she felt that, like, with the last guy, they were never able to get to that point because kind of the love fell apart. So she could never come home and, like, have that. It was always cold, maybe, when she came home. So maybe there's some truth to that. Like she's walking You're in. You're giving a lot of credit. I to think the I'm movie giving there. a lot of credit here. <laughs> but I'm just trying to play devil's advocate. Um, but yeah, I, I go back to your point also. Ultimately, an even weirder aspect of this ending is the montage feel of it. Why do they just tell these quick little things of like Aletheia comes home, she sees the gin, they talk real quick, and then it fades to black. It comes back up. Aletheia's talking with her neighbors. She stands up to them for the first time because they're literally bigoted people. And then it cuts to black. She comes home another day, says, hi, Jen, love you, Jen. And then she brings food to the bigoted neighbors. Like, what? <laughs> we just saw in the last scene that these people are like racist. <laughs> like, why? This is weird. Why are you like, hello, I'm trying to be a kind neighbor. Very weird. Um, and I guess the Jen walks up and maybe that's supposed to be like, I'm here, deal with it. But the way they shot it, it didn't feel like that, like empowering moments at all. And then it cuts to black again. And then it comes back from black. And now the gin is suddenly sick. Which was not explained. Well, why hold on, was he Austin. Sick? Hold on, Austin. Are you ready from Wikipedia to find out why the gin is sick? I I'm very excited because I don't know from the movie that I just watched. All right. Well, they had a couple throwaway lines where they told us that the gin is not made of dust like humans. He is made from electromagnetic waves. So the thing that causes the djinn to be sick is after they move to London together, he starts to feel the effects of cell towers and satellite transmissions. That was not fleshed out at all. <laughs> there was that one scene where it was, oh, this is really hard for me. I'll adapt. But he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the most jarring thing was she comes home that day. He's sick. I thought it was just from like living a mortal life. Like that's what I thought it was because yeah. he's not immortal. Um, he's sick. She wishes for him to be better. That's her second wish. And then immediately the third wish is, I wish for you to be free. And the movie ends. It's so quick. It might be the most like jarring ending I've seen in the movie this year. And so, yeah, to your point, Keith, I don't think you're in the wrong here for not catching on to that because it happens so quickly. Like her second wish is, I wish you could speak. Oh, I, I wish you were free. And so I guess technically he's free. He goes back to the realm of the jinn, I think they call it, which that's something I would have liked to not necessarily see more, but hear more about it. Like, what does he long for? Like, He's been away from it for 3000 years. Like, does he want to go back there? We didn't even really talk about it that much. They say like stories are life to them. So I guess they're all storytellers. I right. heard. So he goes back to the realm of the jinn, and apparently every few years he comes to visit her and then the movie immediately ends. So 
very bizarre last few minutes. <laughs> like I'm, cu- I'm so curious in all the lore of it. I think it's a cool idea. All of it's a cool idea. This is actually a movie I think should have, could have been two and a half hours and just give more time to flesh out the ideas you presented to us. So to kind of wrap up on a more positive note, I know none of us really love this movie. None of us would really recommend it when it comes to a theater watch. I do want to at least kind of start winding out the conversation on some of it a positive note because I really did love this movie from a visual standpoint. It felt like that was what they decided on first and then sort of built this story around it. All the periods to me looked and felt really different and show a solid passage of time, which I think is pretty crucial when your movie's called 3,000 Years of Longing. Like, it should feel like 3,000 years are actually passing. So some of the stories were more fantastical looking, some violent even, like lots of blood in that uh, brother storyline. And then some were more romance focused, obviously, including the present day one. So uh, just to kind of close out on perhaps a more positive note, what do you guys think of just how everything looked and were there any highlights specifically? Yeah, how how different everything felt is definitely a highlight. That's a great call out. Um, I really liked Idris Elba's design too. Like there's shots where he kind of looks like a, a mermaid. There's shots where he looks like his skin has scales and like it's gold specks. And you can tell a lot of the budget just went into making him feel different, which I thought was a great touch. I think the best looking one actually might be the Sheba one. It just felt so different from anything else in the movie like that. We all, George Miller is great with the sprawling desert, and the sprawling desert in the Sheba storyline looks fantastic, especially when the army is walking up. Um, even her palace like looks so different and unique. And yeah, the, the set design, I thought, was great for every part of this movie. I liked pretty much all the short story moments. Uh, like you said, the, the one with the brothers. Oh, man, when the fat brother, he's like, you know, he's, has his little fetish with the big girls. That actually looked really good. I was like, damn. Yeah, like the sets <laughs> looked great. And what was his thing with that? Like, why did he have an obsession with bigger women? Like, there was some reason, right? Yeah, was it, it was like the mom, the mom said, like, they would produce, like, he thought he would produce more, like, boys or something like that. He also had a, he had an obsession with the way the skin felt, too. He liked oh, to yeah, think it was. That's right. Yes. Oh, my God. One of the most horrifying scenes all year, maybe the scariest scene all year, but it was so powerful visually, was watching the brother come out of the room, open the little, like, door slot. And he just sticks an arm out, and I don't know what his arm was covered with, <laughs> yeah. but it was something. <laughs> there was some, some liquid on that arm, and the way he was like touching his mother and brother was like disgusting. It was visceral, but it was also like, it was a pretty powerful reaction. I was like, that was a cool moment. So yeah, all the sets, all the visuals look great. Even the little things, like I had like a really kind of, I wouldn't call it like a jaw drop moment, but there's one part where... um. Uh, the gin is like kind of like flicked away in his bottle again, and a bird catches the bottle and then like flies oh, yeah, over the cool. open sea yeah, cool. and drops it. And I was like, that's like the best looking bird I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, yeah, there's just for such a small scale story uh, when it comes to the present day elements, I guess, like those visual moments and like everything feels so grand and really adds to that, you know, the long life of the gin. So that's for sure the best part of the movie. Even like you said, Matt, the, the passage of time is very visual in this movie. And I think a great example of that is the the bathing room um, when he initially makes the wish for the woman to fall in love and get pregnant. And there's that stone he gets buried under. Watching how that room changes, yes. it, it really cool. gives you a sense of how long he's been stuck under that stone. Yeah, yeah I like that a lot. And the, the bad brother, um, the murderous brother, whatever, like the battle scenes are actually really cool. As yeah. like, as brief as they were. And it's not like combat, too. It's it's like still shots, which was pretty cool, too. That scene with the horse, with like the spear and the horse is like 
uh, back as it's running into battle. Oh, yeah. That, that was, was cool. Intense. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> it was like still hitting people on the way with the, with the yeah. spear. And even to that point, I think it, it, you can kind of tie it into the present day moments. I know we joked about that first scene where the djinn shows up and it's like, that feels like green screen. But they, they had a good visual language for even the smaller scenes. Like, I really loved how um, they talked about how the, the, the murderous brother was clearly just really depressed and an alcoholic and fucked up from all of that combat and, all, and everything. Uh, but so they, they had like all these like famous storytellers come in. Obviously, this movie is a big theme of storytelling. And he just hates them all, except for this older man who he really ends up forming a deep bond with. And even just the scenes of watching them like sitting in the dark and the old man is now sitting on the throne and the and the brother is just kind of like, you know, eagerly and excitedly looking up to him as he tells him a story. And then, you know, kind of contrast that to when he's holding him, his corpse in his arms, like after he passes away, it's like, oh, man, this is like a like obviously there's not like visual effects happening here, but what what powerful imagery. So I, I loved some of those moments, too. Yeah, there's there's definitely moments where you can feel the tragicness of the stories in a very short amount of time. Like you said, the old man story. And then also watching how, how good his relationship was with the math girl and then watching it immediately get taken away when she wishes it never met. Like that also felt very tragic too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, guys. So I know um, we don't really talk about this kind of stuff too much. So I, I'm just really genuinely curious what your thought is. Because again, I know I've, I've already said this, but this isn't like a, a huge hit of a movie for us, obviously, but I do think it kind of relates to a pretty interesting conversation. So like we said, this movie is totally failing at the box office, and I don't think that's me being hyperbolic at all. When your movie costs $60 million and your movie's been out in this many thousands of theaters for over a week and it's made less than five, that's a really not good sign. And so while it may not be great, I do long for days when a big director like George Miller could make a mid-budget movie with an indie feel but has a huge scope and scale. Um, I feel like with the advent of things like the MCU and just the fact that it, it seems like 100 million plus dollar movies from a budget standpoint, I don't think that should ever have become the norm when it comes to making movies because that I think it's like a dangerous space when it comes to making that money back. And I just feel like kind of those days of these more interesting, different feeling movies are gone, uh, unfortunately. So I don't know. What's your take on that? Um, it can relate to this movie specifically. It can relate to what you want to see more of in the future, what you think of the state of movies in general or now. Just any thought you guys had on that. I do think the marketing for this movie really hurt it and in terms of getting meets and seat. Um, I also think we're still seeing the effect of COVID on movie theaters. I think for people to go out to a movie these days, it, it's really the sold out ones are going to be the MCU, the $100 million movies. I think that's the only thing that's going to attract people out these days. Um, I think with the rise of streaming, that's why you're seeing a lot of smaller movies just go in there instead because it's not worth the cost to try to fill up the theaters. I think the combination of the rise of streaming and then the, the lingering effects of COVID are, are really going to impact some of these smaller movies. Um, and we're really seeing it with this one because it is a big name like George Miller, but he hasn't put out a movie in a long time. So he doesn't have that same household name that like, Christopher Nolan can get or Ridley Scott can get like I think he's definitely up there in those tiers but or even Spielberg like I still think we have some of those big names that, that are going to sell movies but I think the longer um the longer these directors take to put out more movies like we're going to see that household recognition kind of drop because people are so relevancy focused these days and they kind of forget um like it feels like forever since we've seen a George Miller 
movie in theaters. Um, I, I was actually surprised when he was like attached to this one because I thought he was only going to do Mad Max. So I think we're seeing it just, it's a combination of a lot of effects here. Pretty much what you said, Awesome, is exactly what I was going to say. Like, it, it's all like all the big, big budget movies like Marvel and, and DC and, and not just the superhero ones, but like maybe some comedies with bigger name actors attached to it as well are going to be the ones that really take the cake in the theaters. And then these small, like interesting movies like this, they probably should just, I don't know if should is the right word, but as far as saving money, like you said, maybe they should just maybe test the waters a little bit in the streaming sites first. Um, and maybe maybe they will make a comeback one day in the theaters. I just don't see it happening anytime soon. Like with technology was already, you know, kind of progressing in a way where that's going to be the way it is anyway. Everybody wants to go to the theater to see, you know, Iron Man flying through the air or Captain America or Thor smashing his hammer on something. They don't want to go watch some like, you know, interesting story that might be cool, but may not be necessary to see on a big screen. So yeah, it's, I don't know. It's kind of just interesting to see how all this is going. And yeah, COVID just kind of accelerated that, if anything, for having like a two year break of uh, those kind of movies coming out. Cause this movie would have not, not only bombed during COVID, it would have, oh, yeah. it would have just, it wouldn't even exist really. It would have had to go to streaming. There's no way it could have gone to theaters. Um, I do also think, too, while we are seeing the decline of star power um, selling movies, I think we are seeing the rise of word of mouth selling movies. So maybe we don't see those big um, opening box office numbers anymore for some of the smaller films. But if you look at something like Everything Everywhere All at Once, it did not have a good opening weekend or even in the weeks following it. But you do see a, a tale of, of box office numbers go up a little bit with that movie because word of mouth got there and there was kind of that buzz and it did build a little bit of a following before it left the theaters. So I think that also could have a positive effect. Like if this movie had come out and the word of mouth was great, I think maybe we would have seen more of a tale. But I think a lot of the the everyday people just aren't really enjoying this film. Yeah, and I, I do want to be clear. I I think the enjoyment factor does play a part into it. But while you were talking, us, I just looked it up out of curiosity. But everything, everywhere, all at once only cost twenty five million dollars to make, and it made over one hundred. So it made its money back and then some. I guess, yeah, I have so many thoughts on this whole thing because then it's like everything everywhere all at once received like universal critical acclaim with some calling that a masterpiece, their favorite movie. I don't think a movie needs to get to that level in order for people to go see it. I think the smaller ones do, though. <sighs> I don't know. That's kind of what I was getting at with everything everywhere all at once. Like this movie didn't get that fervor like everything everywhere all at once did. I guess to that level, though, I mean, do you th really think a movie needs to be like, oh, my God, this is the most important movie of the last 10 years? Like, I don't think it, it has to. Right now. Yeah, because I think FOMO plays a huge factor in people's decisions. OK, well, that's a good point. I just wish it wasn't the, that that shouldn't be the case. Um, to your point, it sucks that George Miller, who's like almost 80 years old, the guy is 77. I mean, he's a brilliant director. He put out Mad Max Fury Road, which I think, like we said, was his last movie in theaters. So that was, you know, seven years ago now. It still sucks that he can make a big comeback and like he can pour his heart into something and like nobody sees it, even if it's not great. I still I still to your point, Keith, you talking about you didn't see anything for it. I, I feel like we deserve to at least know about this movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> Great cast, great director. It's not fair that like some people will never even hear of this one. I was also thinking about, and it, it kind of made me laugh and also feel sad earlier, but I was like, man, I guess time's really changing. I mean, I long for the days when Austin, Keith, and I were in high school, and we literally saw at least one movie every week. And while I was thinking about that, I was like, well, that's because we were in high school. We had nothing else to do. But honestly, like, there's no way kids these days are doing that. 
There's no way. No. They're not going to the movies every week. They're not seeking out. Yeah, they're movies. not seeing a walk among tombstones with Liam Neeson in right. theaters like we were. <laughs> well, my, my, my point being, whenever we were in high school, we were seeing movies that often for like four years. Like we would go see the big ones when they came out. We would get excited for the big movies. But then, you know, when we had an off week, it's like. Well, hey, you know, I heard, I'm reading about this movie. It has, you know, a pretty big actor or actress in it. Maybe a cool director. I haven't really heard too much about it, but it might be fun. You want to go see it? Sure. Like, kids aren't doing that anymore. Some days we would just walk up to the marquee and just pick a movie up there. And that's what I mean. Like, we're losing out on that. And I think that's why some of these film reviews are failing, because that generation of people will never do that again for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Is it because of the MCU or, like, the bigger project specifically? I don't know. The streaming, too. The streaming is Also streaming, and that's a good point, Keith, because that also reminded me, because I was reading about the box office failure of this movie, and I think MGM, who um, put it out, they were saying, well, you know what? We're not too worried about it yet, because movies like this can often make all that money back when it comes to home release, for example, or I guess streaming in this case. But that also made me think about um, Matt Damon recently did an interview on Hot Ones where he was asked about kind of the state of movies in general. And he was saying, like, you know, when it comes to streaming, the thing that often is tough is, like, you're not getting that money anymore. You're not getting the millions upon millions upon millions of dollars that a movie will make when it comes out on VHS or DVD or Blu-ray. You're not getting that anymore because people are only going to watch it on streaming. Like, maybe you get a big payout when it comes to putting your project on streaming, but that's all you get. Like, you know, a lot of people relied on in the past, these smaller movies, like it comes out in the theaters. It does okay, maybe not great, but then it makes everything back and then some when it comes to home release. But because of the advent of streaming, that's gone. And Matt Dean was talking about it's kind of a scary time. Like, it's really hard to make small budget and mid-budget movies because you don't have the option to make it back on home release. Like, you either have to make a movie that costs over $100 million and is part of like a big franchise or... Put it on streaming and it's a, it's a scary time. And I was like, I never really thought about it that way. I do think, though, part of that is the movie industry is going to have to change with the times. And well, part sure. of that is going to yeah. have to be like contracts are going to have to be written differently. You can't write contracts for maybe you can't write contracts for a percentage of box office anymore. Maybe now it's percentage of downloads or something like that. Um, yeah. Like things yeah. like that are going to have to change. And as much as I love going to the movies, it's, it's my happy place. It always has been. I do get a little frustrated by the advertising of like, this movie was made for theaters. It's only going to theaters. Thank you for being here. That's starting to kind of get on my nerves because it just feels like the movie industry is is just stuck in the past. And like streaming is here to stay. It's only going to get bigger. You're going to see even more streaming services come out. I'm sure at some point, almost every studio is going to have a streaming service. And when, when you do stuff like that, and then you're complaining about how we don't like how it is these days, it, it feels like some people are just unwilling to adapt the change. And like I said earlier, it's like some of these movies now people now what people are saying is, oh, that would be a good one to see in theaters because it has all the effects like the new Top Gun. You know, you want to see Tom Cruise and Miles Teller flying upside down in a, in a jet engine on the big screen with surround sound. But then you like watch some like indie movie that's like just like a little love story kind of movie. Like, oh, uh, yeah, why do I need to see that in the big screen? I just I just rent that on Netflix or I can or I can get it on uh, HBO Max like. I'll just watch that. I'll just watch that one with my girlfriend at the at the apartment. I don't need to go to the movie to see that. I think that's a good point. People will pay for spectacle. Yeah. So that's like what that's what the movie theater is turning into now. It's like, oh, that's just where you go to see like the movies that had like the big effects. You don't go to watch stories there anymore. Yeah. Um, which is kind of sad, like you said, Matt. And then like going back to your point about like kids, well, like now it's expensive to go to the movies because they got to make up for also all that true. now too. Because back in our days, 
it was maybe like five bucks for a ticket, maybe 10 bucks for a popcorn and a soda. Now you're spending almost 12 bucks on a ticket and like 15 bucks on popcorn and a soda. So you're spending 30 bucks. So kids in high school, we can afford that because we're young adults with big boy jobs now. But like these kids in, in high school are younger. They can't, they can't spend 30 bucks on a movie. Yeah, it's a crazy time. It's just like we said, because, you know, it's funny to bring up everything everywhere all at once, um, because that was also the impetus for doing this episode, essentially. <laughs> but we talked about that as a movie that only cost twenty five million dollars to make, which means it's going to make its money back pretty easily. Uh, it feels like those are the only movies we get like indie wise like in that in that range and then go from twenty five all the way up to a hundred, one hundred million plus. So my only fear is like, are we going to miss out on some really cool opportunities to make movies that cost between 26 million and 100 million, if that makes sense? Like, I just hope we don't lose some of those mid-budget movies because there's a lot of opportunity there. I do wonder, though, because you have you have people like the Daniels who directed everything everywhere all at once, and they're kind of known for stretching their budgets and doing more with less. And then you have George Miller making something like this, who he's been a, a huge director for years, and he's probably not as used to having to stretch his budget as he maybe was earlier in his career. So maybe we may also see the rise of like directors who really know how to work within a budget. Maybe their movies are more successful at the box office because they can do more with less. And then the bigger directors that want to take on smaller projects but still need some of those inflated budgets, maybe they're going to be kind of panned down and, and their stuff has to go to streaming. And we'll see what happens. I think just to kind of cap it all off, my whole point is I just don't want the advent and you know the increased like need and desire for studios to utilize streaming. I just don't want that to take away opportunities for not even just big name directors, but just good directors and like up and coming directors to make those mid budget movies. Because like I said, I think there's tons of opportunity there. I think, you know, this one cost $60 million to make. If they had marketed it literally at all, you could have made that back pretty easily. And I think, you know, other movies could utilize budgets around that area. I just don't want those to go away. I don't want, I guess what I'm trying to say before we end off here is I don't want the state of movies to be like only massive, huge budget MCU movies, right? And then the other end is just like really, really small indie movies. <laughs> like, I hope there's a middle ground somewhere in there. That's all I hope for. I don't want that to go away because I think there can be some cool stuff there. Um, yeah, what about you guys? Anything else before we close out and get to our awards? I do agree with your overall point. I don't want that either. Um, I do think things have a way of, of right-sizing themselves, so there might be a, a drastic shift right now, but I'm sure we'll get to a point where, where both markets kind of even things out and, and there will be a place for those middle-budget movies. It just may not always be theaters. It might, yeah. you know, maybe we'll see the rise of like a streaming service just for the middle-budget movies. You never know what someone's going to come out with. True. Good point. Yeah. I agree. All right, guys. Well, that was honestly a, a way longer conversation on the state of movies than I thought, but I thought that was great. So happy we did that. Happy we threw that point in there. It was way more interesting than 3,000 years along. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Uh, but before we fully close out, of course, it is time for our Arnie's Podcast Awards. This is the part of the show where we just call out something. It can be positive, can be negative. It just has to be something that we think deserves some award potential. So, guys, who's got something? I'm going to give the next big ride at Disney World award. Uh, and it's to the little silk swing that King Solomon pulls his wife up to at the oh, party. Whenever she fun. got pulled up in that little swing, I was like, I want to go for a ride on that. So that's mm. going to be the next big ride at Disney World. Unfortunately, though, I think the implication is once you get off that ride, then you have to ride King Solomon. <laughs> oh. Well, that's just the added bonus. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine like a ride photo? <laughs> 
<laughs> like, oh my God, look at me on King Solomon. <laughs> Actually, that's that's the seat for the ride. The roller coaster oh. seats is just is just King Solomon's lap. Wow, <laughs> what an honor. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Speaking of creepy old men like that, I'm going to give out a common award of ours, a reoccurring award of ours, the Creepy Peepee Award, oh. and that goes to the. Old man with the, what, four wives, three wives? Oof, that guy was a creep. He was very creepy. And my award, of course, goes to the saddest callback. Um, Keith, I don't think you all know this. Austin, you might. But George Miller, uh, in the early to mid-2000s, was supposed to direct a Justice League movie. And when Alethea is giving her presentation about storytelling and mentions superheroes. That was cool. I did like that presentation. Yeah, there was a big picture behind her of the Justice League. She was like, this is what modern stories look like. And I was like, George Miller, I see you. I wanted to see that movie. Although I think Army Hammer was supposed to play Batman, and since he's a yeah. cannibal and a rapist, that yep. probably worked out for the best. <laughs> that would have been rough. That would have been rough. But in the early 2000s, I'm sure that casting would have been celebrated. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Oh, man. So, George Miller, I would like to see you direct a Justice League movie at one time, um, but the Snyder cultists won't allow it. Sorry. I would also like that, but given where you're at uh, in your life and the fact that you still have three more Mad Max movies to make, I think you're going to run out of time. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well, I guess in advance, rest in peace, George Miller. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everybody, so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit that follow button so you never miss our upcoming content. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend, we'd really appreciate that to continue to grow our show. Please leave us reviews as well. Even if you don't want to write anything, leaving us a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you ever get your podcasts it really does help us out. At The Arnie's is our social, and thearnies.media is the website. We'll be back on Tuesday for another episode of Our Favorite Movies. One of us picks an all-time favorite, and we make that the subject of the following episode. Keith did Ford v. Ferrari last week, so make sure you go check that out. And next time... It is our friend Austin's turn. So, what'll it be? Yeah, we um, we're sticking with George Miller, my friends. Whoa. And we've mentioned this movie a lot. Uh, but last week, Keith picked one of his favorite movies of the last decade. I'm going to be following suit. We will be covering Mad Max: Fury Road. Oh, wow! It's only going to be my second time watching it. I think. I think Same I, here. I think that theater yeah. viewing is still my only viewing. It'll be. It'll probably be my like sixth or seventh time watching this movie. I, I absolutely love it, so I can't wait to talk about it. Well, you know what? I'm excited because after begrudgingly having to talk negatively about George Miller, I'm excited to I'm excited to put some praise on this man's name. All right. And lastly, we want to hear from you. So please send us a message on Instagram at the Arnie's or email us the Arnie's Media at gmail.com. What did you think of three thousand years of longing? What would your wishes be? Anything you say, we'll read on the show and react to it live on our latest episode. That's right, everybody. So with that, have a great rest of your week. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll be back for a fun one. Mad Max Fury Road. It's going to be a fun ride. So look forward to that. And yeah, that's all I got for you. See you next time. All right. See ya. Don't die of electromagnetic radiation. I think that's what it was. Oh, yeah. Was that what it was? Yeah.